VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, April the 25th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonce King is sitting in the producer's chair this morning. Let's get the week off to a flying start. Of course, that can only happen when you join us live on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Okay, excellent opening weekend for the Newfoundland Growlers in their quest for yet another Kelly Cup championship. Hosting the Trois-Rivières Lyon at the Mary Brown Center over the weekend. Got a couple of victories. Really handled them in fine style. And Trois-Rivières is nothing to fool around with. 7-4 Friday night, 6-2 Saturday night. They're off to Quebec for Game 3, and that happens tomorrow evening. All right, so good start for the Growlers. Good start for the local boys, too. Bowling with a two couple of goals and a couple of assists in his first two pro playoff games. And I don't know if you took in any of the action of the Atlantic uh, Under-18 AAA Midget Hockey Tournament out in Paradise at the Double X Complex. Man, I tell you what, those boys were playing four keeps. Not necessarily the result that the uh, Pinnacle Growlers wanted or the host East Coast Blizzard. So eventually the Moncton Flyers beat Halifax Max 2-1 in the final to move off to the TELUS Cup. But a couple of our guys were the recipients of some of the individual awards. So congratulations to those boys. I got it right here somewhere. Oh, here it is. So the East Coast Blizzard goaltender name is Sean Hogan. He was the top goaltender for the tournament. And the top defenseman in the tournament was Growlers D. Cole Goss. So that's fantastic stuff. Why to go for those two guys? Those are prestigious awards. So it doesn't take away the sting of not winning the team event. But congratulations. And congratulations to the members and the community behind the Pugnisivich Southern Shore Breakers. They're the Herder Champs. They really handled Clarenville. I guess quite easily. I don't know. I didn't see any of the games, unfortunately, but it was a sweep anyway. And so the Breakers are the Herder Champions Senior Hockey Supremacy. It's the sixth time in franchise history that they have won the Herder. Congratulations to all involved. Pretty storied franchises, the Southern Shore Breakers. All right, so took in a little bit of minor hockey over the weekend as well. So that's it for the Provincials this go-around. I mean, it's the highlight of the year. Now, there's one more massive event coming up at the DF Barnes Arena, the U9 Select Tournament. So the Novice Selects is always an absolutely brilliant event. But the Provincials wrapped up. You know, congratulations to all who, you know, through all of these trying times with the fits and starts with the COVID shutting down and get back on the ice. So they got it done. And the Provincials are now in the books. Congratulations to everyone who took away a provincial title. And good luck and congratulations to everyone who participated, period, especially those of you graduating from minor hockey. For a lot of young hockey players, that's the end of their competitive hockey world. Maybe graduate into some rec hockey, you know, the beer hockey leagues and whatnot. So if you're a midget hockey player, you just wrapped up, or a U18 player, and you just wrapped up your minor career, hopefully you enjoyed it the way it was intended to be enjoyed, and good luck and stick with it. Keep the blades on the ice and stick on the ice too, I suppose. Uh, on that, quick note on minor hockey. I want to say a personal thank you and happy trails to the longtime technical director of the Avalon Celtics Minor Hockey Association, Steve Power. The commitment he's made to minor and amateur hockey over the last 30 years is incredible. Whether it be attention to the rec hockey players, the all-star players, the coaches, his support of the board of the Minor Hockey Association, he leaves a big gap that has to be filled. He's moving on to uh, another opportunity. He's going to be involved in golf, not hockey this time, out at Glendening. But, Steve, you, <laughs> I tell you what, 
anyone who's around the minor hockey business in this province is well aware of what Steve Power has meant to minor hockey. So I suppose we haven't seen the last of Steve in the rink. He's actually the president of the Canadian Ball Hockey Association as well. So Steve's moving on to the golf business, but we'll see you back in the barn, Steve. And I would imagine on behalf of a lot of the coaches and players and board members that you've helped and assisted with and guided and mentored over the last, I guess, three decades, uh, we all want to say a collective thank you. But there you go, Steve Power, good fella. All right, just got a couple of today's in history. This is an interesting one. And I would have thought that this particular seaway was older than it is. It was 63 years ago that the St. Lawrence Seaway officially opened for shipping. Of course, an enormous maritime trade route connects the Great Lakes of North America to the Atlantic Ocean. goes as far inland as Duluth, Minnesota. They, it ships hundreds of millions of metric tons of cargo through the seaway annually. There was, so this is today, it opened in 1959. Construction began in 1954. There was a big standoff between the United States and Canada to try to get a partnership to pay for the construction. Canada eventually said, shag you, we're going on our own. Eventually, the states did, enjoy, did indeed join in. So the opening was Queen Elizabeth II and American President Dwight D. Eisenhower. They had a short cruise aboard the Royal Yacht, the HMY Britannia. And then the St. Lawrence Seaway was open for the massive shipping route that it is. Of course, a collection of locks and what have you, but there you go. That's a good one. And also, on a scientific note, today it was a couple of Cambridge University scientists published their discovery of the double helix, helix DNA, deoxyribose nucleic acid. So they spent a couple of months unraveling what they call the secret of life. They published this paper in 1953, forever changing genetic research and eventually changing criminal justice. So, DNA. What's in your DNA? Okay. So, we're told that there has been a breach, a cybersecurity breach at North Atlantic. So, this may indeed affect some of their home eating customers. So, I guess an unauthorized third party made its way into the uh, narrow marketing e- employee's email account. And they say they stopped it pretty quickly, but there absolutely has been some of the information of their customers has been compromised. So you may indeed have your contact information, banking and financial information. So if you are one of the customers of North Atlantic, maybe it's a good idea to connect with them to see what's going on, whether or not your email address and information has been compromised. They're putting forward an email address for you to consider. It's communications at northatlantic.ca. So you may indeed be one of their customers whose information is now in the hands of this so-called unauthorized third party, which leads me back to a story we read last week about the fact that we still don't know a whole lot about what went down with the Meditech system hack here, the healthcare system. But we do know that the government paid in excess of $200,000 for public relations advice, which has basically told us very little. You know, and then there was an update. You know, we thought that there was compromise going back to the early 2000s or 2008. Now it's all the way back to 1996. A couple of hundred thousand people's information may indeed be in the hands of who knows what and whether or not they demanded a ransom, who knows what's going on beyond the fact that we have just some bare numbers and dates to deal with. So, yeah, $200,000 for that stuff. All right, let's stick with privacy and the sort. This is a big one. And I don't even know if we had a single call on it, but I think it's a massive big issue because, remember, when the public were justifiably crooked with the PC government with the implementation of Bill 29 and rebuffing our frivolous and vexation requests for information and documents in the hands of the government. Now the government leans a lot on protecting the public disclosure of documents, saying that it's legal advice and touting solicitor-client privilege. 
This has been a racket that's been fought many, many times by privacy commissioners. So as opposed to letting the privacy commissioner review a document to determine whether or not it entails legal advice and consequently will not be publicly disclosed, because Michael Harvey, our province's privacy commissioner, he has no interest in, and I think rightfully so, we're going to shield legal advice because that's one of the things that is part of the sensitivities that does belong inside of some protection. But when there was an opportunity in years past to review all of the documents that were deemed to entail legal advice, it turns out some 80% of those documents did not actually qualify as legal advice. So again, I don't know how widespread the attachment or the labeling of solicitor-client privilege is happening at the provincial government level, but it should absolutely be up to the privacy commissioner. You know, his eyes and his eyes only, his team, to determine whether or not what the government says is actually legit and does qualify as legal advice, and then we'll go from there. So this is all based on a Supreme Court ruling that came down a couple of weeks ago that says the government does not have to, and Mr. Harvey does not have the uh, power to compel the government to release those documents to his office to see whether or not it should be withheld from our prying eyes in the general public or organizations who put forward submissions for a TIPA requests. Anyway, I think that was a big deal. All right, let's move on to something a little bit different. And this story, I think, is going to be, in the broader strokes, the pathway to $10 a day daycare and early childhood education. It's an excellent idea. I don't have children that need daycare, so I don't have any skin in this particular game, but everything I've ever read about daycare and its affordability and accessibility is good for all. I know that's a difficult message to craft because I hear it all the time. If you can't afford to take care of your own kids and don't have kids, which I think is a bit of an oversimplification. There's lots of economic upside to affordable, accessible childcare. So this story comes from the South Coast. And you know, we talk about the need for so many of these communities to be able to keep young families in these smaller, rural, possibly isolated, remote communities. And there's a variety of things that are associated with that. But if they don't have access to childcare, then that might be the reason why they say enough is enough. We have to sell our home and move somewhere closer to affordable, accessible childcare. And this one story, I think, leads us into a bigger conversation about the implement, implementation of. And it's got to be fair and equitable across the board. Regulated versus unregulated homes, the training for early childhood educators, the rate of pay for early childhood educators, because if we step back and take a look at how it's worked in other jurisdictions, it absolutely has been to the benefit of all. doesn't matter if you have a kid or not that is young enough to be in a childcare setting. You know, it's the ability to get back to work to move up the ranks of seniority where you work, to pay taxes on the monies that you're paid, your remuneration. So there's lots of reasons why this is a good idea for all of us. But anyway, it's got to be not just to focus on the big centers where there is the critical mass of potential customers or clients, children. It's got to be across the board, especially when we have a legitimate ongoing concern with young families leaving smaller communities because you know what that ends up being. The aging demographic becomes very, very real. And the population will dwindle to the point where there will be fair conversations about the provision of services. So young families staying where they are is going to have to be something that we figure out. And it absolutely includes uh, child care. And this one particular family, boy, I have their name here. I'm not so sure I should flick it out there, although it's a public news story. But maybe we'll see if we can reach them uh, directly to come on and describe what they're dealing with in their own community. Because that's a big one. Also... I think this is a big one too, but I'll admit freely, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind exactly around exactly what 
is the outcome of the ban on wind generation, wind power generation, that's been in place since 2007, Bill 61. It is yet to be amended formally in the House of Assembly. That'll happen in the fall sitting, I assume. But different people in different companies, the province says that there's been a bunch of uh, organizations that have expressed interest in the now hopeful wind opportunities here. But, and if some of these, even like uh, uh, Econext, the, the CEO is Karen Hanley, talking about the fact that there are big opportunities. And so, Mr. Hanley, maybe we should reach out to him directly. Thoughts? Let's see if we can go to Econext uh, and get Mr. Hanley this morning if he has time to join us on the show. You know, there's going to be some potential Muskrat Falls implications. And then even if there's wind farms built onshore or offshore, I mean, the cost of finding a market and getting the power to that market is pretty extraordinary. Does the real opportunity lie with hydrogen? I think it probably does. Now, again, some of this is over my head, but power that is generated by wind to power water electrolysis to produce hydrogen, which could be used to fuel vehicles, stored and using fuel cells down the line it's going to be one of those transition types of fuels will be hydrogen so is that where the big opportunities lie there's not a whole lot of details yet fleshed out in full by the province but someone in the industry whether it be the horsepower behind biotic energy mr mercer and or mr hanley at eco next to talk about and help the general public understand what this can mean for the creation of jobs taxes provision of power how the hydrogen application may may offer a big opportunity for this province. Here's a good one. 40% of Canada's developable wind potential exists in Newfoundland and Labrador. For comparison, the province only uses about 1% of national consumption. So we all know it's windy here, but how does that translate to the big opportunities? Yet to fully understand. And I would imagine if I did a review of my weekend emails, it's, you know, a variety of issues will be broached. But it's usually dominated by healthcare. And the whole collaborative care clinic piece. So, if you don't have a family doctor, what you need to do right off the bat is to register yourself with the new portal called, uh, I had it here in front of me now a second, it's Patient Connect NL. You put in your contact information, including your postal code, and then they will try to attach you to one of the collaborative care clinics. The problem for many is that I have a family doctor, that doctor is being recruited for one of these clinics, moves on, and can't take me, the patient, with him or her. So it does make all the sense in the world that you go to one of these clinics and the, the point of contact will be a doctor or a nurse practitioner, but then there's the availability of a social worker, pharmacist, occupational therapist, physiotherapist, registered nurse, all of the professionals in the healthcare system. You would think that when you have that set up, and you don't always need to see your general practitioner, that these clinics will be able to see so many more uh, patients than the regular independent contractor GP clinic, as we're also familiar with. So if you don't have a family doctor and you want to get on the list to be a patient of one of these clinics, go to Patient Connect NL and register online, and hopefully you'll be able to find yourself on the list of patients at one of these collaborative care clinics. But when people make the point that if it's not a new doctor, it's simply a doctor moving from their own private practice into one of these clinics, we haven't necessarily really gone a whole, far, a whole way down that road. Also, I see this being bandied about because we all have to come up with some potential solutions, especially when we talk about staffing in rural areas of the province. Someone makes an interesting suggestion on my social media feed over the weekend. Start with them in high school actively recruit 
those interested in the healthcare field, and especially if they want to go to med school, is we go a long way, which we already do, to subsidize their education, all with the hope that someone who's born and raised here from a smaller community in somewhere in the province is much more likely to return to that community to provide these services versus someone from, say, elsewhere in the country or from elsewhere outside the country. It makes a lot of sense. Now, the service agreements, I've been told, don't necessarily work, but I don't know how forceful we'd have to be if you're, say, from, for instance, St. Albans, which has lost her family doctor. If a St. Albans native gets through med school and we subsidize their education, they're probably much more likely to want to go back to St. Albans. So how we talk about, you know, it's not just recruiting a doctor who's already graduate of a med school, it's recruiting actively for the future students of a med school that will maybe stay and help us out here. How are we doing on the phone this morning, Fonz? Let's get a few calls going. A couple of sad stories up in Happy Valley Goose Bay, which we'll get to in a little bit. But So for information purposes only, there was five additional deaths reported on Friday, bringing the total to 157, but 47 of those deaths have occurred in April alone. The so-called deadliest month surpassing March where there was 44 deaths. So our condolences to all. Hospital numbers are stabilized, 25 in the hospital, 7 are receiving critical care. But this one here, I don't think it's gone away. We talk about the cost of living related matters, and they're widespread across the board. We're, this province is only one of three in the country with New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island that do not distribute rapid antigen test kits for free. So the government, the provincial government, has distributed just about 5 million of these, of these test kits. They've got another 1.4 million in storage. That's, of course, to replenish the supply at daycare centers, schools, uh, those living in congregate living facilities, healthcare workers. But here's what I don't quite get, is if they're able to do it elsewhere, how are we not able to mimic? Because... It can't be an important tool in people's individual toolboxes. Say, for instance, you're just told you're a close contact. Or your son or daughter in school has been told they're a close contact. And, of course, they're coming home and living with you, maybe up for a cuddle. Why are we unable to give them out for free? Is there some different approach or financial relationship in the rest of the country? You know, other than New Brunswick PEI in here, where they're able to give them out for free? Because people who are already strapped are not going to spend top dollar to go buy a rat, a rapid antigen test kit as opposed to take their chances. Anyway, if you want to talk about anything on that front, we can do that this morning. All right, and let's get the show off to a good start. You know, we need your participation for that. So today in history, a bit of a sad one. Oh, before I get to that one, today marks 25, or pardon me, 10 years since we lost Tom Fitzgerald, better known as Big Tom. Larger than life, and I don't think I've ever been around anybody who was quite so energized and so beloved. It was remarkable. It didn't matter who you were with. You could be out with some of the biggest stars in one setting or another, one party or another, and Big Tom, he was the biggest star and the brightest star. He was a good friend of mine. We had some great times together, and he's gone now 10 years. It's hard to believe it's been 10 years, but what an extraordinary sad loss. And good job to the crowd at K-Rock over the weekend. He knows a pretty poignant tribute on the... Saturday in Big Tom's Shed, JLAC, way to go, kid. So it's a really sad loss, and I still miss him, I have to say, tell you that. And also, this is another unfortunate death, but it leads us to a tune. In 1992, Juno Award-winning uh, Award rock producer, songwriter, and artist Brian Too Loud McLeod. He died in Vancouver at the age of 39. Most notably associated with bands like the Headpins and Chilliwack. 
So let's get a little Chilliwack going before we come back and speak with you. So Chilliwack, the self-titled album, was a double album by the one of the most underrated Canadian bands of all time, Chilliwack. It was released in September of 1971. It had a top 10 hit with Lonesome Mary. Let's hear that track, and when we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, George. You're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Happy to do it. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come on. This is a good, uh, a good news story, if I may. Um, I'm a co-chair with the uh, PWC, Prince of Wales Collegiate Class of 1970, graduating class. Around 350 students graduated that year from PWC. And this year, after two years of delays, we're having our 50th plus two-year reunion. And that's going to be held in St. John's over three days, uh, July 29th, July 30th, and July 31st. We're all getting on a little bit in years now, so we, in our minds we're going to be able to do three days. Our bodies we may not. Hopefully we will. And uh, we have a, a meet and greet on the Friday, July 29th, somewhere in the downtown vicinity. On the Saturday, we have a sock hop and uh, bring clean socks. It's going to be held at the Comfort Hotel Airport. Um, compliments of uh, Clayton Hospitality and uh, Judy Sparks Janu, who was a graduate of Prince of Wales, and she's uh, opening up her hotel for us. And, of course, uh, just for on Judy's behalf, she did not graduate in 1970. She did not graduate. Thank you very much, because I probably would have gotten a stern phone call sometime this morning yeah. from Judy with regards to that. And, uh, and yes, thank you for correcting that. Some, some years later, I'm sure. Absolutely. And uh, so that's on the Saturday. And the Sunday, it's, uh, it's a, 
a revisit to Topsail Beach from back in the day. We're, 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 we're talking about uh, kids that went to school 67, 68, 69, 70 at PWC. And there was great years, um, a lot of great music that was played back in the day. Um, bands of Five Sins and around St. John's and uh, the Fourth Agreement. All of these people we know, many of these people to this day. You just played a song, uh, Brian McLeod, part of uh, Chilliwack, and of course Brian played, and uh, Brian sat in front of me in grade 10, actually, at Prince of Wales, and he used to play uh, a mean pencil on the on the desktop there back in the day, so uh, uh, it was nice to hear that song to get me going, because when I first came on here, I didn't know what I was going to say, so <laughs> thanks for the bit of rock music. So, Well, I'm glad it uh, hit you right in the feels. When's the last time this group had a reunion? Well, we had a reunion, I think it was our, our uh, 20th or 40th, 20th, it was in 1919, so whatever the year that was, that would be 1990s, my math, I wasn't very good at math at school, 30th year reunion, somewhere around there. I guess it would have been your 20th, and that would have been yeah, some so. 30, 32 years ago. Yeah, so this is going to be 50 odd year, 52 years later now, and... Um, we're 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 all going to get together, and uh, we have about 180 students that we've been able to contact um, over the past two years uh, through whatever means we could, and uh, we have a Facebook page, a PWC Facebook page that's been active for the past two years, and we're just reaching out now in the last ditch efforts to try and include as many as we can. We've got about 108 people on that Facebook page and uh, and uh, about 180 on the list. So we've sent out newsletters to these folks and whatnot. So um, I'm hoping that uh, we will get uh, more uh, uh, more input in the next month or two months. So we do have tickets on sale now, and we do have uh, – they can be purchased either e-commerce uh, through e-transfer, I'm sorry, at tickets – PWC1970 at gmail.com. And we also have our email site, which is PWCReunion1970 at gmail.com. I'm not sure anybody's going to be able to time to write this down. Certainly they're not going to remember it. But so give me the, the, uh, the so it was PWC1970Reunion at gmail.com? So PWC1970 at uh, pwcreunion1970 at gmail.com is our email address. I'll keep that one on hand in case anyone missed it. Okay, yeah, so there's a further. couple of uh, high school reunions coming up this year. I know there's a big alum of my alma mater, uh, Brother Rice, coming up as well, and great rivalries and some of the great chants, certainly at the hockey rink, for those two particular teams. Well, not, not for you know the radio. I mean, so much was fabulous back in those days. Everybody would be down at the stadium to watch. Uh, it, it would be uh, Brother Rice, Gonzaga, Booth, uh, Bishops playing hockey down there. And yeah. that was uh, such a big thing back in the day. I've got to say that in 1970, our claim to fame, I grew up with most of these fellows in that period, Holy Cross guys, and went over to Brother Rice. And I grew up in the in down on Casey Street in St. John's, and most of my friends were were uh, were Holy Cross boys, and we uh, we cut our teeth on street hockey and soccer and everything else. Oh, sure, name drop name with, drop a couple of uh, hold on a second there, George. Name drop a couple of notable graduates from PWC 1970. Who do we know? <sighs> well, I'm not sure if I can do that. We've we've got a Supreme Court judge. We've oh, got, there you uh, go. 
We've got uh, Brian McLeod, of course, has long yep. passed. Uh, um, who else that you might know? Well, you would probably uh, on the one of the other medium uh, media was uh, Debbie Cooper, uh, uh, CBC. Yeah, longtime host of here now, of course, terrific. Of course, yeah. Um, you're catching me with that one. That question, of course, is myself. Um, <laughs> no. Just trying to think of some others. I'm going to miss some. Listen, well, I'll let you off the hook on that one. Uh, very quick for me before we uh, give you the de- you give the details one more time. I suppose it's the same for you as it is for me and most people listening. When you get back in the room with the people who went to high school, I suppose it's because it's your formative year, so to speak. It's just remarkable how you slip right back to where you left off. There's no awkward silence. There's none of this standoffishness. People go right back to the glory days and they embellish the stories like they happened just yesterday. Maybe they're a little bit more daring or a little bit more funny. But it is absolutely astounding how quickly we all slip right back to where we left off as friends from high school, regardless if you're 50, 60, or 70. That's my experience anyway. I agree, Patty. That's, it's been beautiful, this experience, uh, getting in contact with people. And I've picked up the phone and, to, and spoken to uh, people I haven't spoken to in 50, 50 years. And you're on the phone for an hour. And suddenly, within the first 30 seconds, everything melts away. You see that person's face in front of you. You, you remember their voice. And it's amazing what happens. And, and we all grow up in, 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 you mentioned the formative years, uh, we all, there's a camaraderie associated with that, with, with the high school. And uh, it's, it's, it's that 50 years just dissipates so quickly. And, and uh, we've had a chance to have had a couple of Zoom meetings and whatnot to try and, or Zoom parties to try and keep the interest going over the past two years due to COVID with cancellations of it. And to see some people and, and to hear some of the stories has just been fabulous. It's been great. And uh, so we're all looking forward to this. And and, uh, and put on your dancing shoes when you're coming to this one because uh, we're having the music from the 67, 68, 69, 70s and great old music from those days. And people were reminisce. And these are the days when you carried the roller skates home from the stadium and whatnot, probably went up to Marty's there and hung around up in Freshwater Road and all these areas. I don't mean to plug these places. They're not there anymore, but... Uh, so this is, it is an era here that's that's great, and the last thing with regards to I'm going to make a plug. You're you're a brother Rice guy, but uh, yep. we happened to beat brother Rice for the uh, high school basketball championship, and we were, we won the championship in 1970. I just had to get that in there, Patty. I'm sorry. It's all good. My years at uh, at brother Rice, we dominated sports. Absolutely oh, dominated. You, it was unbelievable. You did. You, did. you had a, a, a such a wide uh, group of of athletes to come in. Uh, Come in to choose from, so that's a, we had a small group, but we still managed. But uh, it, it was it was a great period of time, and uh, a lot of friends are actually having a, an event uh, a week after ours. I know about that one. I might even try to get into that one myself. <laughs> yeah, why not drop down? Uh, you know, we wouldn't turn away the, any Protestants just because. <laughs> no, I'm sure George, it's good to have you on the show. So, folks, if you're interested in more info or to purchase a ticket, PWC Reunion 1970 at gmail.com. Have fun with it. I appreciate your time this morning, George. I thank you for having me on, Patty. Good luck and have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, lots of time to talk to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM.
Welcome back to the program. All right, let's go to line number three. Gail, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. I just want to comment on the immigrants coming into our province and into um, the other provinces. Okay. Um, the guy got nine games them coming in by no means. But I think that uh, our uh, our government and the federal government should look at the people that are living in our in our provinces and help them out and give them homes that don't have a home. I think that they should help them uh, get work as well. And they should be their priority over the immigrants. Can't you do both? Pardon me? Can't you do both at the same time? Yeah. There's, you know, the discussion about immigration for many people becomes a difficult one because if we all of a sudden, everyone who says anything or questions the immigration strategy or the process, then they're labeled with the R word when that's un unnecessary and unfortunate, you know, when you hear it or see it. But if we talk about safety and security, fine. We talk about housing and access to health care, fair questions. But I really do think if you look across the board of what's happening, what the, the track record of immigration of the country is, it's really quite strong, and it's had a positive impact, I would think, uh, I would suggest. We've got a labor shortage nationwide. We have a dwindling population, an aging demographic in this province. I think immigrants can only add to the province as opposed to detract from it. I think there's an economic upside. There's a report that I read last month about even contributions to CPP and the tax base in the country and what immigration means on that front. And there's all sorts of myths out there associated with who relies on social assistance more than one group or another, and they're contributors versus detractors. So I think there's a way we can uh, attend to both. And I get it. If someone tells me, you know, what about someone who's born and raised here and doesn't have a doctor or doesn't have access to an affordable home? I really do think that both conversations can happen at, this, at the exact same time with the intended outcome to the benefit of both groups. Mm-hmm. That's how I view it, anyway. Okay. I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah, there's, you know, and what I'd hope to do when we have conversations about immigration is to have it uh, fairly and without anyone being labeled or attacked because they think one thing or another, which we're, you and I are doing here this morning, which I really appreciate. Because quite often, the conversation... You know, same thing when we talk about climate change and things. It just goes to the end before we even have the process of having the discussion. So, yeah, I I'm glad you called on it this morning and we're, and we're handling it like this. Well, like I just said, sir, I don't discriminate by no means, but uh, I think that the government should put Canadians that were born in Canada priority first and help them to get a job or a home if they need one. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and there's different uh, pathways to permanent residency or citizenship. And, you know, there is indeed uh, uh, the concept of attracting skilled immigrants because there's many of those skills we actually need in the country, all the way from engineers to IT professionals to doctors. So some of that actually happens. And I think that's part of the conversation that's actually happening in Poland now when we are speaking with Ukrainians who are maybe looking for uh, a safer, happier, more prosperous home. That might be Canada. It might be this province. So there's mm -hmm. all the way from refugees to skilled immigrant attraction policies. So it, it's not even a one-size-fits-all. It's not a catch-all. Immigration is not just one thing. There's a variety of different pathways to arriving here. You know, just like when so many people from Afghanistan who were supporters, supporters and supportive of us on the ground 
We brought them here, right. and we tried to help them. And same with other groups that are running for their very lives, whether it be Syrian immigrants and, and you know and the like. So a lot of really happy to be here, hardworking people could be part of the immigration conversation as well. And yes, folks who need help here for getting a doctor or affordable housing or whatever the case may be, we obviously have to play that role actively at the same time. That, that would be where I come down on it, but I'm glad you called this morning. Gail, would you like to say anything else? Nothing else, no. Appreciate your time. Thank you for your time. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number four. John, you're on the air. Oh, good morning. morning. Uh, how are you today? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Oh, not too bad. Um, you know, whatever. Um, okay. The reason I'm calling is um, I have two uh, very strange gay Lafleur-related stories. And in both stories, I walked away with something, and I never actually got to meet them. Give us a rundown. What happened? Give me story uh, number one. I, was, I, I worked at I worked at Mom in the phys ed department, and um, he was here in Mount Pearl um, for a tour, signing autographs and whatnot. And uh, unfortunately, I had to go to work that weekend, and um, so I sent my voice in to to get meet Guy and get an autograph, and I got the picture here right now, actually, and. Um, uh, he signed that, and he said, she told him, I said, this is from my husband, and he was a big fan of yours. And he said, well, how come? And he said, well, he had to work. And, and Gabe responded that he didn't think it, it fair that people should have to work on weekends. <laughs> Even though he's, his prime uh, opportunity to work was Saturday nights. Yeah, but everybody else had he got a chance to go and watch him there. I know, I get it. Yeah, and um, the uh, the other story, actually, again, was because of... Uh, Related to to Guy in an indirect sort of way, uh, I had two students of mine who were going up to Montreal to see a hockey game, and it was the one on February eighth, nineteen eighty four, I believe. Okay. And uh, that's when he made his comeback. He played in Montreal for, with the Rangers, and in that in what happened there, my two students cut the flight on Friday night, went up to Montreal, hung, hung out. Went up and down St. Catherine Street on Saturday, and who should they run into but Yvonne Cornoyer? Cool. Cornoyer. And, um, and uh, you know, he, they, I asked, oh, did they recognize him because they see his picture in my office all the time. And said, oh, Cornoyer. And um, Yvonne said to them, um, you know, have you been, ever been inside the forum? They were still, still at the forum in those days. And, um, he so he brought him over and brought him inside the reform, and he introduced him to the security guards. And Ivan said to them, "You look after these two guys. These are two of my best friends. You make sure you give them a better seat, and you give them whatever they want." And that was, of course, was a game where he and um, scored two goals, and um, we got two brand new habit sayings out of that. They couldn't believe that someone as big as Eve Allen would come and talk to them like that. Let's go to the road runner to treat them so uh, hospitably. Is that how you say that word? How so caringly? That's, that's a word you could stick, stumble over, yeah. Yeah, I stumble I mean, over many words. Uh, a, lot so, of, a lot of players now more uh, don't treat their fans like that. I've met quite a few after that, and they're not as pleasant, but... Uh, Yvonne was, and so was Cornway, um, Guy, and a few other ones. I think they uh, 
it seems like the players from the, our, our, our older generation, uh, from that generation, even the one before that, um, tended to be nicer to, to people uh, than more modern-day players are. I don't know if you would agree or not. Well, I don't know. I, th- I guess it kind of depends on the person themselves because there's lots of great examples of very generous athletes you know, with their fans. But, of course, that doesn't mean that they're all that way. Uh, I'm Eki. I, I don't know if you heard the story. I told it last week. Uh, I was playing in a, a Pure Later Cup. That was uh, the Bantam Atlantics back in the day, and he was a guest speaker. The The players were not allowed in the hospitality room, but I could see him through the big window. There he was. So I hid my, my team hat and coat and sweater, and I snuck in along the hip of someone who was walking in there and met Lafleur. Got caught, got, got, got kicked out, got in a bit of trouble, didn't care. It was totally worth it to meet Lafleur uh, like that. I mean, he was something else. I don't know what people think of the Montreal Canadiens. You know, it's a love them or hate them kind of team. But one thing they do well is the ceremonies. They really yeah. do pull it off. And last night was a great example of exactly that when they paid tribute to the great Guy Lafleur. I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling at that because, um, unfortunately, I fell asleep. <laughs> well, I missed, I missed it, but uh, uh, I, I should have it on tape. But I, I missed the ceremony, but I'm hoping to look at it a little bit later. But, I mean, uh, yeah, to do that, I mean, and I met quite a few of them that came here from, from the Rocket and... and um, Conway and Doug Harvey and the whole lot. I, after meeting a, a big bunch of them, and they always seemed to be nice when they when they came here. Uh, I played a bit uh, of street hockey with Mario Tremblay. Uh, he lived yeah. in the neighborhood where my aunt Evelyn lived in Roxborough, Quebec, when I was a child. Yeah, a few shots with uh, Tremblay, which is also a very fun memory. Uh, good to have you on, John. Always happy so to have what, these types what, of chats. What do you think of What do you think of Mario's record? Uh, he's not looked upon very bravely in as his record as a coach, a coach uh, when he coached the Habs. Um, well, a lot of that stems with the way he handled Patrick Waugh. Yes. Right? Yes. Remember that one night against Detroit where Roy was Patrick Roy was getting pummeled in the nets, and yes. we all know the I, thing. You can remember I the won. replay. He walked past him and said, you know, something along the lines of, this is my last game. Yes, yes. And um, Guy was treated somewhat the same way when... when uh, uh, Jacques Lemaire became coach. He did, wouldn't give him time, apparently. So, so he says in his book, uh, he was scaling back his time, so that's when he eventually retired. But uh, uh, I guess some of the players, it's hard to coach or be friends with former friends who are now your bosses. I suppose that's part of it. Uh, and Lafleur, of course, I, I comes back. That, I experienced that at Mon. <laughs> And of course, Lafleur comes back to play with the Nordique and with the Rangers. And his very last game with the Rangers at the Forum, he assisted on a Brian Leach goal, and he got a standing ovation. He was the first star, and even some of the Montreal faithful, like some of the coaches and stuff, are looking around, going, "What? This never happens!" You know that kind of cheer for a player on another team. But of course, he was an absolute legend in the city of Montreal, and I would suggest across the hockey world, he was best player in the world there for a while. So there you go. I appreciate the time, John. Thanks for the call. Okay. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time for you. Don't go away.
Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands, Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Grand, thanks. How about you? I'm doing best kind, sir. Patty, uh, I was prompted to call. Uh, I um, was reading a story there on CBC this morning, and you brought up in your preamble about uh, the Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, um, the concern he has now with um, government, I, I guess, trying to shield information from the public uh, by using the client solicitor privilege exemption and the fear that he has that that would be uh, abused, I guess. Um, and so I, I did want to comment on that. I, I do share his concerns. I do want to say right off the bat, though, and uh, a quick little bit of history about this, because I've been uh, around, I guess, for 11 years um, and uh, was here um, during the bill 29 times. Uh, at that point in time, I was a member of the PC party, of course. And I can remember uh, at the time when it was brought forward uh, by the government and the rationale at the time, of course, that, that, that we were given was, you know, issues around uh, all these uh, frivolous requests and so on. And uh, on top of that, I think there was, uh, I believe in reflecting on it, I think there was somewhat of a bit of paranoia perhaps here in the government at the time, a sense that government was somewhat under siege. And, you you know, you hear people talking about, you know, that, you know, that the opposition and the media were using the ATIPA to be finding, you know, keep on trying to come up with all the stuff they can to be just beating up the government and so on. And anyway, it got the bill, the bill got uh, passed after a filibuster. Um, as I said, I was here. I voted for it at the time. You really had no choice but vote for it or I guess be kicked out or whatever. It was no free vote. Um, but I can remember at the time and after the filibuster and listening to all the arguments, I can remember after the vote finally did come down, and I can remember looking over to one of my colleagues and saying, you know, uh, we voted for this, but I feel that we're on the wrong side of this particular issue. And no doubt that came to fruition as time went on. We were hearing from uh, more and more people. Uh, the liberal opposition at the time kept on showing examples of blacked out paper on, uh, on everything. And we were all hearing from constituents, and uh, I can remember it became a big topic uh, at the time uh, within uh, our caucus. I know I brought it forward numerous times, as did other members, and we were imploring um, the cabinet at the time, look, we got to go back and change this legislation. This has gone too far, uh, and so on. But um, the, the, the warning wasn't heeded, I guess, and that was the primary thing that uh, led to me eventually leaving the PC party. Now, I will give credit where credit is due. Uh, after the uh, former premier at the time, Dunderdale, had left and Paul Davis came in as the uh, as the premier or the interim premier, whatever the terminology would be, um, they did uh, take it upon themselves to hire um, Clyde Wells, former premier, liberal premier. Uh, I believe Doug Leto, uh, if I'm not mistaken, That's from right. the media or someone else on the, on the committee as well. They came forward what, by what was being touted by uh, people all across the country, I think, as the best access to information legislation uh, in the country. 
Um, and it was a proud moment. Unfortunately for the PCs, it was too little too late, I guess, and, uh, and the rest is history, of course. We know what happened in the election. Uh, but we did end up with what was considered a very solid access to information legislation. Now we find ourselves in a situation um, where, I guess, uh, the current administration, and it's interesting that, you know, there was at least a couple of members over there on the side now that were the ones that were holding up the papers that were all blacked out and criticizing the government at the time. Now we're in a situation where they um, use the courts to, uh, uh, based on an Alberta ruling, to challenge the, uh, the commissioner's ability to uh, see information which they deem as uh, client solicitor privilege. Um, that's been, uh, I guess, upheld in the courts now, and uh, the privacy commissioner is finding himself having to call on the government to change the wording so that he can uh, determine uh, whether or not something is client solicitor privilege and to prevent the government from, quite frankly, abusing it. Because sure. we've seen it, for example, with Nalcor, where everything is commercially sensitive. Whether it is or not, all they can do is say it's commercially sensitive and, and he doesn't get a look. Yeah, but they're and governed by a different problem. piece of legislation, uh, are, of course. They are. And well, the last time... I'm just going to jump yeah. in before we have to go to the news. Sure. The, um, sure. the last time there was a review of the documentation where it was said to be a client solicitor privilege, 80% of those documents did not qualify for that legal yep. exemption. So yep. it always belongs in the hand of the Privacy Commissioner. Mr. Harvey is quite clear. He has no interest in disclosing, publicly disclosing documents that include legal advice for all the obvious reasons. But he should be the person to determine that and nobody else. So if that's what we have the Privacy Commissioner for, not just for appeals, but I think from the onset, Said. If government wants to put that label on it, the first step in the process should be Mr. Harvey is given the document to say whether or not it actually qualifies. I don't know how that's not fundamentally the way we proceed here. It's a good political look for them as well, because in my opinion, the unraveling of the PC government back in that, at that day was Bill 29. Absolutely. I think that's what uh, lost them a job very quickly. Uh, the other member of that panel, if I'm not uh, mistaken, was Clyde Wells, Doug Leto, and Jennifer Stoddard. She was actually the federal privacy commissioner for about a decade. That's correct. Yes, that's right. Okay, last and, word to you, Paul, because i got to go. Yeah, no, and, and you're right, and it was the unraveling, and we end up with great legislation, and now, if, from what I can gather, the current administration is trying to unravel that again, and it's a step backwards, not forward. So, uh, you know, they're hanging it on this uh, interpretation uh, by the court now that uh, he doesn't have the right to see it. He's saying, okay, if that's the case, change the legislation to make the wording more clear. They don't need to do it. They could just simply give them the information uh, willingly. But if they're not going to do that, uh, which is unfortunate, then let's change the legislation. But uh, at the end of the day, they were the ones who campaigned on true openness, transparency, and this is uh, going totally opposite of that. So I call upon them to do the right thing and uh, let's uh, allow the Privacy Commissioner access to these documents so we can make sure that uh, any information that should be available to the public is. Thanks for this, Paul. Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. And also, I just want to mention, today is day one of Volunteer Week, so if you want to bring forth some volunteer-related conversation and discussion of the show, that would be most welcome this morning as well. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Scott's in the queue. He wants to talk about how long it's taken to get an appointment at the cath lab. There's only one of the problems. It's here in St. John's. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in the Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM.
This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Scott, you're on the air. Yes, sir. I'm uh, calling about our health care system. Um, I- I'd like to know what's going on with it, why it's it's so so slow or, or what's going on. Uh, I've been here in this hospital for 24 days. Uh, I have a heart attack, they told me. And I'm... Like I said, uh, Saturday they called me. I had a bed in St. John's. And now the mid-flight team won't fly in here in this area and pick us up. Now, I understand that it's weather-related issues or whatever. But uh, yesterday, sir, there was six planes, possibly seven, landed at our airport in St. Anthony, and the mid-flight team wouldn't, wouldn't come in. Now, they're a medevac. To me, a medevac... This should be out on the go when, when no one else won't. They're a medevac. I mean, what is the purpose of it if if it's no, you know, if if they can't go? They say their plane is not able to handle it, or the ceiling is too low. There's always like some kind of an excuse. There's a staffing issue with medevac, is my understanding as well. But I suppose if there's legitimate weather concerns, then. Whether you're traveling for business or pleasure or medevac, there's only so many conditions they can actually travel in. But I wasn't there that day, so I have no earthly idea. But right. the, the point you're making about being... So you're in a hospital right now, are you? I'm, I've been here for 24 days, sir. And you're waiting to get an appointment at the cath lab. I, I got a bid into the cath lab, but I just can't get out of St. Anthony. And they won't, they won't release me from hospital to right. go... I would drive, right, or, or or get on another plane when it comes to that. But if if I if I go out of this hospital, then I automatically got my bed gone in St. John's. And like I said, this has been since Saturday morning. So how long are they going to hold this bed for us, right? Is another thing. It's a fair question. I remember a conversation I had with a, a gentleman who was in a bed at Western Memorial in Cornerbrook waiting for an appointment at the cath lab, and there was a fellow right across from him on the ward waiting for the exact same thing. So while we have people needing and wanting beds in the hospital, we got folks lying in these beds simply waiting for these types of appointments. You know, add to it, if I'm waiting for placement in a long-term care facility and I'm medically able to be discharged, they're charging me $39 a day while I wait for uh, a bed that, you know, in my region, whether it be in Gander, Grand Falls, Windsor, whatever the case may be. So these things don't make sense. The cath lab thing to me was curious. When they put forward a plan for constructing a new hospital in Cornerbrook, nobody was ever out there clamoring for a cath lab. There's only one in the entire province. So while they were, you know, talking about CAT scans, no one talked about cath labs. Imagine how we could ease some of the congestion for that type of procedure if there was one additional cath lab, and that might have been a good place to start with a new construction. Well, sir, for me, if, if David said to me, well, sir, yes, we'll get an appointment for you in Toronto or Halifax or over in B.C. when it comes to that. I mean, if they would give me an appointment, that's all I need. I, I, I don't need them to, to take me to St. John's or anywhere else in Canada. Sure. All I need is, is the bid to be able to get this done. I, I'm, like I said, I'm 54 year old. I'm trying to run a business here in in my area, and and it's been nothing only just a heartache, like trying to do things and and the stress of your business and everything else. You know that it, it's it's just hard, really hard to to cope with. And uh, and like I said, uh, now since Saturday, I've had a bid Saturday morning. They tell, come in. They told me I had a bid in St. John's for, for to get this test work done. I don't know if I had a heart attack. I don't know if I should be even walking around. 
you know, I'm I'm just to the point that, well, if I die, I die when it comes to that. And that's a, that's a hard way to look at things. But uh, like I said, 24 days and, and I haven't... Uh, haven't moved anything, and and like I said, uh, it's it's just just a heartache to try to, you know, try to to get through the things. I got a guy in the bed next to me; he's been there for nineteen. And and like I said, you know, the, he don't even have a bed yet. Yeah, there's a lot to this. I understand the medical liability component. So if they discharge you and all of a sudden you fall ill and your bed has been lost, but, you know, if people are willing to take on their own personal risk there to wait at home for whether it be transportation to St. John's and or an appointment at the cath lab, because the most expensive place you can possibly be in this province is in a hospital bed. The most expensive. Yeah, well, like I said, for me, I I would have been in there yesterday morning. They gave me the appointment, the the bed on Saturday morning around 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And I would have been in there 12 hours. I can be in St. John's, right? I can drive during 12 hours. Or I would have got a flight because yesterday there was six flights uh, and there was the seventh one that was supposed to come in to our airport in St. Anthony uh, to, you know, and they were coming from St. John's, um, Deer Lake. They came from Goose Bay, um, Boise Bay. And on Saturday night, we were taken by ambulance, me and another lady, two of us both the same, were taken by ambulance to St. Anthony Airport, which is 52 kilometers, and we were brought back again because the flight team were on their way to us, but they got medevac to St. Pierre. I mean, that's that's belongs to France. You know, uh, the only thing I can say to our government is look after your own first. Uh, then look after someone else if you can do it. And as for our premier and, and our member up here, they're both in the medical profession. She was a nurse. He was a doctor. Go back to the medical profession. Don't, you know, and, and, and try to do some good because they're definitely not doing good where they do. You know, there there is no help whatsoever. Yeah, uh, understand the, the concern here, and there's got to be a better way. And uh, again, I still, for the life of me, will never understand why there wasn't a lot of people on the West Coast talking about putting a cath lab in that new hospital versus uh, the cat yes, scanner. Sir. Anyway, appreciate the time. I wish you. you well, Scott. I agree with you, and and far as I'm concerned, our hospital in St. Anthony here should should be going with Western as well, rather than Winter Two. I At wish least. you well. Good luck. Yeah. Okay, sir. Thank you very much. You're welcome, Scott. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, what we're talking about, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two, say good morning to the PC member of the House of Assembly elected in and serving the folks up the shore in the district of Fairland. That's Loyola O'Driscoll. Loyola, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. How about you? Good, Patty. I was with your preamble there this morning, and I certainly like to recognize all the volunteers in our region this week in the Fairland district. Uh, I mean, what they do uh, is they keep all these groups and all these communities survive, uh, alive, I guess, in the area by their volunteerism. And, uh, you know, I'd like to thank them personally while I'm here and uh, doing another tour this morning. But uh, I think it's great what they do for their communities, for sure. If you uh, backed yeah. out the energy and effort and time committed by volunteers in the province, the place would be vastly different 
for and for the worse. I mean, government would never be able to replace what we get from volunteers. So it's completely worthwhile, not only volunteer week, but throughout the year to recognize. So I'm going to, again, throw it out for stories. If you're listening to the show and would like to recognize a volunteer in your area, a group that you work with, or someone from your family or community, share the stories. Because the more that we talk about what volunteers do, the more likely it is more and more people will volunteer. No, Paddy, a couple of little stories on that, and then I'll get to my main subject where I called in. But, uh, you know, I heard you speaking about Steve Power this morning. Yep. And I also know, uh, you know, dealing with your dad when we were, when in the younger days of hockey, and we were down to Memorial Stadium, and he'd recognize you. You know, you're going line and you say, good day, Loyola, and I'd say, good day, Mr. Daly, how are you today? And, you know, for him, and he was a volunteer, and you grew up with that. So, you know, that's one example of volunteerism and how it spreads. And uh, another one would be uh, we have a gentleman up the shore this week that's going through some health issues, Mr. Gerard Sullivan, and he was a you know a great advocate for the Southern Shore as well in hockey the last fifty years, I'd say, you know, and uh, you know our thoughts and prayers go to him as well. Absolutely. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, today, calling, I'm uh, you know pretty excited uh, the weekend to go out and watch the uh, Southern Shore Breakers play in the uh, Herder final and uh, to bring home the six starters. So I'd like to congratulate all the. Uh, members of the executive, the coaching staff, and certainly all the players. You know, it takes a lot to run a hockey team. And it's not just, you know, just the players on the ice. I mean, they're there. They got some some of these people got the young kids. And, you know, it's a big commitment to make. And to go along with, all, again, all the volunteers that uh, make this happen in, in all the teams. And, uh, you know, congratulate Clarendale Caribou's for a great final and the, the, all the other teams in the in the league. You know, they certainly did a great job. And, and it's hard to keep a league going. You know what it's like these days. And, you know, with the young people going to university and, again, being dads and uh, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's it's hard to keep a team going. I certainly say that. And congratulations again to the Breakers. Yeah, good on them. Uh, and senior might be harder to keep going than any other division inside of minor or amateur for a bunch of different reasons. So, yeah, good on the Breakers. So, so that's six for the storied franchise. And you talk about volunteers. I would have spent... Many a night up in the office with Nick Aylward and Kenny Williams and others as they watch their beloved Breakers play. So I just want to throw out Kenny's name because, you know, he was a great hockey volunteer, whether it be the role he played in the development of female hockey in the province and or, of course, the Breakers and managing the rink up at Mobile. So I wanted to get that in there. Uh, Loyola, how many hurdles did you win? Five, Patty. Five. <laughs> Brazel planted that in my head earlier to ask you. <laughs> Yeah, thanks to Razzle. Yeah. No, uh, you know, it was uh, certainly a great honor to play in those championships. And, uh, you know, to see you come back to the shore and see it alive again is certainly great as well. And, you know, to congratulate the Ghouls Pacers and the Southern Shore Breakers during Minor Hockey Week, we had teams all over the island. And it was certainly great to see all the, you know, all the stuff on Facebook, all the teams playing. And I wouldn't want to mention one team and forget another team because there's so many in the organization from under seven right up to midget hockey. So, uh, you know, congratulations to all those and all their parents for getting them there because it's certainly not a cheap venture to drive to St. Anthony or drive to Stephenville and, you know, to go uh, watch their kids play hockey. So, you know, it's a little more expensive these days, but congratulations to all those groups for sure. I was really pleased to see that there was a tournament scheduled for Labrador City. I believe it was a... Pee-wee or, or a Bantam event, anyway. And it got cancelled, and of course the locals were quite frustrated with it, but they got back off the ground at the uh, Lab City Arena, and the locals uh, won it. The Lab City Lakers were actually the, the champions. So, you know, it is expensive, but we really do have to spread around these provincial championships because it's good for the organizations, it's good for the kids to be able to get the host one of these events. We all know how great it is to travel and play a bit of uh, ruler hockey out in the hallway and stuff and get a bit of pizza down to Harold's 
Bulls or whatever. But uh, it's it's a big part of the hockey season for players, coaches, families alike. So yeah, congratulations to the Herder, Herder the Herder champions of the Southern Shore Breakers. Uh, I've had some fun times in that barn. I can tell you that. Yeah, barn is it? Well, it was a great barn in the day. I gotta say, and you know, even the weekend uh, when we were in there, it was uh, you know a fair crowd up there. I gotta say, seven or eight hundred people. And it was great to see the people back in the arena. And it, bring, it helps all the economy as well. I mean, traveling, these teams like from Honor Hockey, traveling and restaurants. And I mean, overall, it's, it's a great and uh, it's great to see, you know, volunteers again, make it all happen. Absolutely. Thanks for this, Loyola. Appreciate it, Thank Take you care. so much for your time. My pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. You know, one of the key issues inside the world of volunteerism, and we've done some work with the Community Sector Council over the years, and that's the organization that... Uh, launches Volunteer Week, and it is important to keep it on the front burner. It needn't just be one week out of the year because the effort is massive. One place where we do a pretty good job, and like even think about high school, there's actual high school credits that come from volunteering. You know, it's a good incentive to get it done. But when you get them young, say high school, junior high, and even if it's just involvement in the community and volunteering with a recycling blitz or a bottle drive or whatever it is, it really does go a long way to planting that seed of what it means to be a volunteer, the needs inside of your community, because when you start young, you're much more likely to continue on in life as an adult and to continue your volunteerism. And it comes in many forms and fashions, whether it be, you know, just volunteering with minor sports or any minor activities, uh, extracurriculars, right through all the big notables in the side of the charitable world. Bravo to all of you who are involved as a volunteer, and please do. Uh, if we have the time throughout this week, whenever, today is a good day for it. If you want to talk about what's going on inside your community and someone you know who's been a really positive impact in the volunteer world doing whatever, we're happy to share and tell those stories so that we can congratulate them individually and just spread the word about what it actually means. Many people, maybe who don't do any uh, volunteer work, you know, it's a commitment of time and energy and effort and dedication. It's absolutely true. But one thing I think if you ask any volunteer at any level what they get out of it, I think to a man and to a woman they'd say that there's a lot of self-satisfaction and gratification that comes with doing some volunteer work. You really feel like you've made a difference. You feel like you've filled a gap and helped somebody or an individual or a family or an organization along. So those are the stories that we are absolutely happy to talk about here on this program. I made brief mention of this one off the top, and I didn't really know where to go with it, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot here now. When we see the spring and summer seasons come upon us, then some of what we didn't maybe see during the winter would be the numbers of people who are homeless. And one such story has been very troubling coming from Happy Valley Goose Bay. It's not an issue specific to Happy Valley Goose Bay. Of course not. But there was a plea coming from that community to the provincial government for more assistance. Just how many people were living in the woods, for instance. So what I meant for some of the crimes that were being committed, and yes, all of the, the severity of addictions, trauma-related or trauma-induced addictions that we see in that community. Now, the headline of this story, I think, unfortunately, probably made some people chuckle, but it's a way bigger deal than just headline-grabbing stuff. So this was a reference to just how many people have been found at one particular hotel that serves as a for-profit shelter for the homeless, how many people have been drinking hand sanitizer. And I'm not saying or telling this story to make any shed any light on it because it's extraordinarily sad. You know, back when I was young, you'd hear the stories of 
some shoplifting that might happen in a pharmacy where someone stole some aftershave, some aqua velva or something, and drank it because of the alcohol content. You know, inside of the, I mean, the alcohol content in the hand sanitizer is obviously quite real. And so what they're finding is that some of their stockpile of hand sanitizer has been disappearing. But what that also has meant is that there's been many, many opportunities or occasions where they had to call for emergency services. So far this month, at that one particular inn, there's been 58 calls to the police and or emergency services because they have found one of the residents that have been non-communicative. They're knocked off their feet. They're immobile because they drank hand sanitizer. So that's really quite scary. I'm not saying any of this to shed any sort of foolish light on it. So the cause, whether it be for drinking hand sanitizer, assault, disturbances, damage to property, sexual assaults. You know, there's a lack of a lot of these types of services in parts of Labrador, including in this particular world. And so we have to talk about it and try to see what we can do about it. But there's been all kinds of warnings brought forward by Health Canada and others over the years. Some brands of this sanitizer, and we've got to put this information in the hands of people who actually need it. Some of these brands contain methanol and ethanol, both of which can cause you to go blind, organ damage. So this is really quite a serious story. And I suppose we'll have to check in with the community and see what type of issues that they're dealing with and whether or not they've had any additional supports coming from the province to deal with what is an extraordinary number of trauma-induced, addicted people and the homelessness issue that is pervasive across Happy Valley Goose Bay. And we're happy to take it on, as tricky as those conversations may be. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, it's been a couple of years since the Newfoundland Labrador Folk Fest was able to return to their rightful home in Bannerman Park. That's going to change this year. There's a big announcement coming up yesterday to officially launch the 46th annual edition of this tremendous folk festival. Joining us on line number one is the executive director at the Folk Arts Society. That's Sean Panting. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Patty? Doing okay, man. You? Man, I'm all right. I'm pretty happy to be back in the park. You know, that's that's pretty big news for us. As you should be happy, you know, and again, there's a lot of moving parts. This isn't just a matter of snap your fingers and all of a sudden the Folk Fest gets pulled off. But it does make it a lot easier when you know that we're going to be able to put people in the park and music in the park because it is a magical event. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of the, it's, it's kind of the anchor event for a whole lot of uh, people around here. You know, uh, we've been getting huge ever since people found out that we're going back to the park, there's been a, a pretty huge reaction from the faithful, you know? I mean, people are people come year upon year upon year. This is the 46th annual, so, you know, people are invested, right? 
And there's a couple of different things. If you've never been to the Folk Fest, it's not just the action on the stage. There's a bunch of workshops in behind the main stage. Lots of different things got, that get attended to. So before we get to some of the big draws, give the folks a bit of a, a taste of what actually happens outside the big stage because that's a big important part of the Folk Art Society as well. It is indeed, and it's going to be uh, slightly different this year. Okay. Um, on the main festival grounds, we're going to have the uh, we're going to have uh, tents set up in the daytime. People can start, you know, there's uh, stuffs. Uh, happening in the morning from 10 to 1 and um, stuff like uh, the uh, the Frank Phone Tent and there'll be uh, some dance workshops and some instrumental workshops and uh, some storytelling sort of something for something for everyone and that's a that that was that's sort of what sets this festival apart too it's not just not just the musical performances but it's uh, uh, it's passing on the it's passing on the culture it's introducing people to all of these various you know uh, parts of what it is to be from Newfoundland and Labrador. I remember one night I was down there doing some introductions from the stage, and the festival got rained out, and so all hands took to one of the tents in behind, and Ron Hines put off one of the most memorable performances I'd ever seen. It was just a, a super impromptu, weird, beautiful night, so great stuff. Can you uh, wet our whistle with some of the acts that you've got booked for this edition? You know what? We're doing our big announcement tomorrow. Not good enough. So I am sworn to secrecy. Uh, I'm, I'm sworn to secrecy about the acts. I can tell you that there's going to be a mix of uh, folks from away and uh, some Newfoundland acts and a couple of Newfoundland acts that, uh, that I think um, people might not have seen live in quite some time. So uh, we're pretty excited about it. And uh, we're trying to introduce people as well to a few, to a few artists they uh, may never have seen uh, before. And we're trying to be a little bit more representative of uh, what's going on in Newfoundland now. You know, it's not it's not necessarily all um, fiddles and accordions and Irish and English and French culture. You know, we have a whole lot of cultures going on here. So we're trying to reflect that, you know. Yeah, the Kubasonics come to mind when we're talking about all these Ukrainian-related stories these days. So, look, and there's also a lot of stuff there for the family. You know, it's not just the evening event and in the bear tent and what have you. There's lots of good yeah. stuff that goes on in the daylight hours. I remember Fred Penner was there a couple of years ago. So you'll get to be introduced to some of the up-and-coming stars, you know, very much like uh, Fergus and the work they do with young folks at the hall. So this that gives you right. the full gamut, the reunion shows, the young talent, uh, a crossbreed of different genres and different faces and different fields to reflect what's actually happening happening in the community so this folk fest is a real catch-all that in my opinion and i've been to some of these folk festivals around the country you know the big ones like edmonton what have you this one rivals all of them yeah i would i would absolutely argue that it does because it's i mean it's definitely about who's on the stage obviously that's that's what you're buying your tickets for but it's it's got a it's got a community feel it's way it's very much about who is coming to the festival not just who is playing at the festival you know, there's a real sense of a real sense of a community. I mean, I grew up in that community, and I played the folk festival a lot uh, with my family and with uh, and with other people. And um, you know, year after year, you see people coming back and having their own families and and coming back. So it's like there's a real community feel, and I think that's why it's so much excitement about coming back to the park. You know, and a calm, warm night in Bannerman. It's just really nothing quite like it. I would, I know, would have seen you and Dave on stage before. So that's good For stuff. Sure. The official launch tomorrow. Well, we'll get some details that I couldn't wiggle out of you here on this program this morning. Fair enough. <laughs> that's right, Sean. I just want to pick your brain on another couple of issues, if you don't mind. 
Sure, okay, so we know, you know, with the loss of Paul Pope, and he will harken back to when he hit a half a million dollars worth of revenue back in the early 90s. Then he remembers when he hits the $1 million milestone, and now the industry is worth in excess of $100 million this year. I don't know what the real number is, but it's a big, booming, and ever-growing industry. You not only inside of music, but you would have been in lots of stuff in the other parts of the arts community, you know, whether it be grown-up movie star, Love and Savagery, Republic of Doyle. I know that you've had uh, a yeah. guest performance on Hudson Rex. The promise goes all in with $10 million at CNA. Some people see it as a throwaway of $10 million. I'm sure you feel differently because it's not just producing stuff for producing sake. It's a big part of the economy. Oh, well, see, that's the thing. And, and I think sometimes as artists, you know, you're so excited about the work that you're doing, you forget to remind people that for every dollar that you put into it, you get 2 or $3 back out of it. And, I mean, there's no return on investment like that anywhere. Absolutely not. And people really... You know, Newfoundland, the reason that, say, we have a tourist industry even, people don't show up to, you know, uh, wander around, you know, looking at uh, whatever current uh, skyscraper type of building is being built. They, they, come, they come for the culture. And, I mean, it's uh, – I think, I think people talk about uh, giving to the arts and they talk about investing in industries. But, I mean, uh, the arts is a solid – investment you get more money you get more money out than you get in so if you never cared about anything but the just the the, sh- the straight up numbers uh the arts make sense well i mean you go what well, we've got a couple of clear examples all of a sudden we have a well-trained professional crew which you need because if you don't have that they're not coming the tax credits help but all of a sudden we got companies like disney that are coming to newfoundland or labrador to produce a film that's something we should be really quite proud of and try to grab onto and build on much like we do in tourism not rest on our laurels know that we've got what it takes we've got the scenery that they want we got the professional crew that they want we've got some of the financial upside with tax uh, rebates that they get so let's make it happen and stop you know pretending that it's simply hobby for hobby's sake kind of stuff because it's way bigger than that we're talking out uh, in excess of 100 million dollars a year so let's get behind it absolutely that that is I, I i couldn't have said it better myself we as we have this uh we still got a bit of an inferiority complex here about what we do and what we have to offer so the assumption is that uh, you know that if the that if the crew was from los angeles the crew would be a better crew and i am here to tell you that um the, the well, I mean, now we have several crews that can operate simultaneously, or we'd never get so many things done. But as far as film crews and TV crews go, I mean, these are well-oiled machines, as good as any crew anywhere. And uh, and I think we gotta we gotta get over this idea that somehow local is inferior. We we <laughs> we've had that attitude for too long. Yeah, because in, in reality, many, many times, it's superior. So we'll look forward to the announcement coming up tomorrow. Uh, what time and where? Uh, yeah, we're going to be um, we're going to be announcing at the uh, at the Alt Hotel uh, tomorrow morning, and then we're uh, pushing it all out on the social media, and we'll be telling you all about it. And I'm sure I'll be phoning back to to talk to you about the festival again. <laughs> Happy to do it. So congratulations and good luck to you and the entire team at the Folk Art Society. Uh, so you, Anna Brophy, I think John and Mary Beth are still in the uh, the leadership fold. So nice to have you on the show, Sean. Yeah, thanks, man. It was good talking to you. Take good care. All right, All right bye. Bye-bye. Sean Panton, he's the executive director at the Folk Art Society. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Steve. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Great today, Steve. How are you doing? Oh, not bad. I just wanted to have a quick conversation about uh, trouting here in Newfoundland, actually. Okay. 
Uh, I'm trying to get some information, and I really don't know where to look, actually. it's it, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the seasons for uh, trout fishing, are you? Uh, somewhat. Okay, so years ago, they used to open it uh, the 15th of January, and it just it closed Labor Day weekend or somewhere around that time. But about 10 or 12 years ago, somewhere around there, they changed the season. So now they have a winter season that opens uh, the 1st of February and closes the 15th of April, and then it reopens the 15th of May. So my question is, why do they close it for a month this time of the year? Because it's actually a really good time for fishing. The water's cold. The, the fish meat is actually a lot firmer than it is when the water warms up. And I've never gotten a real answer as to why they do this. And I'm wondering if anybody in government is listening. All I've ever heard is they do it for ice safety. That seems to be the common public opinion of why they do it. But, I mean, it's actually ludicrous because if they do it for ice safety and the Northeast Avalon, it would never open. <laughs> like, Yeah, to me... Some of that makes some sense because we know what we're like. If there was an opportunity to go out and get a trout and to go out and chicken cod, sometimes people kind of put uh, safety in the back seat and take out small boats in pretty treacherous conditions, and we all know what might happen there. Same thing with going out on rarely risky ice conditions and trying to get a trout too. So I'm not justifying it because I don't know if that's the rationale in full. That's behind it, and if anyone else wants to chime in, provincial government members or other anglers and tell us what they think about the season change happy to have that conversation yeah because i mean for sure with the uh like i mean just in regards to the ice safety like i've had my canoe in the water for the last month yep. like and it's been like for the past four or five years right so i mean realistically they're doing it for and i understand what you're saying about you know people push the limits but sometimes you just can't regulate stupidity for lack of a better term to say it but i mean but realistically for ice safety they would have to close it and especially on the eastern half of the island, they would have to close it in March. Sure. Because that's generally when the ice is unsafe now. And on the west coast this year, I mean, they're going to be ice fishing when it reopens in May this year. I mean, there's there's still an insane amount of ice over there. They're skidooing and stuff. So, I mean, there's no real way to regulate it based on the weather, if that's even the reason. So I was just curious if anyone in government could actually chime in and just explain it. I'm happy to take that call if and when someone's willing to offer some reasons or rationale. What kind of trout do you go for? Uh, mostly mud trout. I'm not really in. Like right now, actually, I mean, brown trout fishing is still open. Someone's going to call and say, oh, trout fishing is still open. And it is. It actually doesn't close now for coastal fishing for brown trout. But uh, that's uh, that's actually a whole dedicated sport you've really got to be into. So I'm mostly the brook trout and mud trout kind of, kind of thing. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, the browns sometimes can infest a river. Uh, too bad there's not more rainbow around. When we were kids, uh, they used to actually stock Nary's Pond with rainbow from uh, Murray's Pond, and that was always a bit of a thrill because nothing quite like uh, landing a rainbow. Uh, good to have you on the show, Steve. Appreciate yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah, no problem. All right, Patty, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, is that Mr. Hanley? No, okay. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of show left to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. The Workday Winds Down with Greg Smith in the Drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. 
Welcome back to the program. The association that used to be known as the Newfoundland and Labrador Environmental Industry Association is now known as EcoNext. Joining us on the line is the CEO of EcoNext, and that's Karen Hanley. Good morning, Karen. You're on the air. Hey, how are you doing, Patty? Doing okay this morning. How about you? Pretty good. Now, we know over the last number of years, there's been a couple of companies that were fighting a losing battle or swimming upstream as they looked for, you know, generating opportunities and alternative for sources of energy. Wind is the conversation we're going to entertain. You know, the biotic energies of the world and others. They fought the good fight, gone by the wayside. But now with the changing of the legislation, that will happen in the fall sitting. Big opportunities in wind. Where do we begin the conversation about where an opportunity lies? Well, I, I think it's important to uh, understand that the opportunity is not necessarily with respect to our own grid. Um, I think we're all aware that we've made a pretty big investment into hydro at this point for our domestic electricity uses. So the opportunity that has driven this has, has really been about um, using that electricity for something very specific. And uh, that specifically can mean uh, the production of hydrogen. It's a, a clean fuel that can be used to displace uh, the use of fossil fuels in various applications. Or for heavy industry. So if you're a mining operator or if you're using uh, minerals to produce or process something, then using uh, wind, for example, uh, as a source of electricity to make sure that you're doing it in a, in a very clean uh, way. So those are the, the big opportunities that are really driving some of these changes, I think. Hydrogen is going to be an important transition type of fuel. Give folks a better understanding of what this really means, the relationship between wind power generated and the creation of hydrogen products for, for export, for instance. So I know the, the process is water electrolysis, but give us the layman's terms what wind power means for hydrogen. Yeah, so hydrogen can be uh, used as a fuel, and, and when it's burnt, uh, so to speak, it produces zero emissions. Kind of the output from it, I guess, is is water. Um, there's a couple of different ways to actually produce hydrogen, and, and it's used uh, very extensively in industry already today. Um, but it's actually to create it. Historically, it's been a very carbon-intensive process. But uh, there's a couple of things you can do. You can actually capture the carbon as you're producing, and, and people have called that blue hydrogen. So you're kind of creating a fuel that has uh, emissions that are captured, uh, and then when it's burnt, uh, there's no emissions. Then there's green hydrogen, and this is where the, the wind aspect comes into play. So you can use uh, any electricity source to actually, uh, through that process you described, electrolysis, uh, to kind of create the hydrogen. And uh, that's where wind comes into play because, of course, if you use a clean source of electricity to create the hydrogen and then the hydrogen is burnt with no emissions, then really you're looking at a, a very kind of advanced and futuristic uh, solution to uh, climate change as you can use that fuel to displace uh, fossil fuels in, in various contexts. And we've had big uh, entities from outside the province looking at this province for hydrogen opportunities, specifically with the Grand River in Labrador. And how wind is going to factor in here remains to be seen, I suppose. But a couple of the open-ended questions so that we know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, and I don't know if you have any more information than I do, but like even something as fundamental as to whether or not we're talking about mostly offshore farms, onshore farms, and if it's onshore, access to land, what that means and wh where the approvals come from. Do you know any more about you know, where they're going to be actually uh, able to set up shop? 
Yeah, I can't speak to any uh, specific opportunity, of course, um, but the question of, of land and access to land is, is an important one. Uh, we do have a, a wealth of uh, wind resources, as anyone in this province will tell you. Um, but, of course, there are some places that are uh, even better than others. Um, so then it's a question for, for all of us as a province to understand, you know, how do we how do we best use that resource? If there's one specific place where everyone wants to get to and everyone wants to use that wind, how do we make sure that uh, we're getting the best bang for our buck, so to speak? And, uh, you know, I would suspect that those types of conversations have been going on for, for quite some time uh, with the powers that be and, and uh, hopeful that there'll be some kind of a very kind of specific process that developers will go through uh, in the near future. Without giving us uh, specifics once again, you know, there's the thought, and coming from the minister, said there's a lot of co- companies that have expressed interest. Is there? Yeah, so from our experience, and, and I can't speak, of course, for, for anything uh, presented to the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, right. but uh, as an industry association, I can say that there's been uh, enormous interest in this, and that predates the wind moratorium uh, listing. Um, for the past couple of years, there's been some, you know, very serious uh, proponents kicking the tires here to understand what the true opportunity is. And I think when you see the the government of Newfoundland doing things like lifting wind bans and, and putting processes into place, it's an acknowledgement that the opportunity is real and uh, that hopefully we can see some things happening in the years to come. I think one of the first comments you made is that we're not talking about wind power necessarily on our grid, which has a direct relationship with Muskrat Falls, and it's a fixed cost, and if all of a sudden one of the big uh, power-intensive operations like a mine is using wind power generation, then we're just going to end up paying more per kilowatt hour on a fixed cost for, uh, coming from Muskrat. So just from where you sit, is there even any real opportunity on the grid and or the export of electricity generated by a wind farm? Because wind farm is all about proximity, right? So if I'm right outside of New York State with a wind farm, I can transmit to a, a massive market. As opposed to either onshore or offshore this province, the closest home will be Nova Scotia or Cape Breton. But we've already got hydro-related agreements with that province. So are, is it kind of wise to, and I don't want you to uh, poo-poo or put, you know douse the flames that might be there, but... Are we talking about any actual electricity being generated and transmitted, or are we simply talking about maybe the focus on hydrogen? Uh, that's a big open-ended question, but uh, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't want to poo-poo on the opportunity. Um, you know, the world is aggressively moving towards electrification and, and the use of electricity to displace fossil fuels and a litany of, of different kind of scenarios. So demand for electricity is going to continue to grow. And uh, even in this province, you know, over the medium term, uh, there may be opportunities for uh, other sorts of electricity generation. Um, distance to market, uh, you know, can be an issue because you do lose some of the, uh, you know, you do lose some of the power of that electricity, uh, no pun intended, uh, over over distance. And, and sometimes it can get into some bureaucracies. You move from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But um, it's important to know that, you know, a subsea cable is, is something that's, although it's kind of new to Newfoundland and Labrador in the past 10 years, it's something that's being done with regularity around the world. Um, so the, the idea that we can uh, generate electricity in this place and uh, bring it to others, it, it's not some far-fetched idea. It, it's definitely possible. There are opportunities. Um, but it's definitely in the possibly maybe category for the immediate term. 
whereas some of these other opportunities that we discussed earlier are uh, immediate mm-hmm. and, and definitive. Well, I mean, the Maritime Link, it's a well-defined, understood 500 megawatt subsea cable that's going yeah. to bring some uh, power to and fro Cape Breton. That's actually already happening. I'm not going to talk about the Labrador Island Link, which is still plagued by a glitch in the matrix. So there's possible big opportunities here, and I think that's a very good thing. A lot of people didn't even know there was such a thing as a ban on wind uh, since 2007, but hopefully this has opened the door to someone and some entities, and I think government's going to stay out of it, which is a curious thing as well. Uh, anything else you'd like to add to the conversation while we have you this morning, Karen? No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, it's this is a, a good thing. I think that um, what government is trying to do is is put the enabling conditions in place here for private industry to take you know the bull by the horns and, and make the most of it. And uh, really, it, it speaks to the long term potential for this province and and i think we're starting to realize it. i I think that there's some bright days ahead for newfoundland and labrador when it comes to clean energy and uh we're we're really excited about it absolutely just for context for folks one more time i should throw growler energy they're 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 anxiously looking for opportunities 40 percent of canada's developable wind potential exists in this province for comparison the province only uses about one percent of national consumption nice to have you on the show karen appreciate your time Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Kieran Hanley. He's the CEO at EcoNext. That's an organization that was formerly known as the Newfoundland Labrador Environmental Industry Association. Uh, When we come back from the newscast, we'll be talking about, well, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. This is Open Line. On VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, every time I utter it, someone asks for some clarification or says, what? What do you mean by that? And this is about wind. So if, for instance, one of the big mining operations, Valentine Lake, wherever, sets up a wind farm to to generate power for their own operations, and then they would not be buying from Newfoundland Labrador Hydro or Newfoundland Power, and what the implication means for Muskrat? Because Muskrat Falls is a fixed cost, period. It doesn't even matter if we consume any of the power, we owe the bill. So it could be hydroelectricity, it could be widgets or doodads. The bill comes due, we have to pay it. So the fewer customers consuming fewer kilowatt hours means that we'll pay more for the Muskrat power. And I know that doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense, but that's actually the facts of the matter. It's one of the issues that the government's going to have to deal with. Because if we have a massive power-intensive operation that is going to generate some or all of their own power, now all of their own power is a tricky one because there's still some issues with battery storage and wind that does blow, but doesn't blow all the time, sometimes blows too hard, which is also counterintuitive, it may indeed have an impact on the ratepayer. And what that means for understanding the final approval of that $5.2 billion to help so-called control our rates at was the 14.7 cents and an increase of 2.25% every year thereafter. If we take some consumers out of the fold, it obviously has an impact. So, and then someone will go on to ask, and these are fair questions about why now is wind okay and why wasn't it then? Talking about pre-sanction of Muskrat Falls. When we were, these are electrical engineers will say this, when we were an isolated grid, no connection to the mainland that we now have, albeit with a relatively small 500 megawatt maritime link, which came in on budget, not schedule, 
the opportunity for wind, we could only have about 10% of the grid filled with wind. So say the electrical engineers. So I suppose that brings upon an additional fair question of, well, if that's the case, then for the sake of the $1.5 billion, or even if the cable was double the size, and I don't know if that comes automatically, but double the price, but even if you spent $3 billion on a 1,000 1, megawatt connection to Cape Breton, would we have been able to put some more opportunities with wind? Now, if you ask folks like Jerry Skinner, who had a 700 megawatt proposal out in the Trapassi Barrens, the answer may indeed be yes. But now that the doors have been open and final legislative uh, changes have to be made in the fall sitting, the amendments to that Bill 61, then maybe it does come with opportunity. But does opportunity mean a bunch of jobs created beyond the construction and installation of the wind farms if the government's not involved? Because if it's just the private sector, and good for them, if they can find an opportunity and figure out the details about purchasing the land and or space offshore, good for them. And let's hope that some of those plans that were in place haven't been shelved in full to where they're unredeemable or they can't get back on track because any move forward is probably a good idea. I do think when I hear from people who know way more about it than I do, it's the whole issue regarding water electrolysis and the production of hydrogen. It's much more easily transported than it would be simply electricity generated at a wind farm, and it will be in high demand. So I would imagine that even prior to this announcement being made by Minister Parsons, there were people who were talking about hydrogen opportunities in Labrador on the Churchill River, for instance. So I don't know what kind of appetite there will be for people in Labrador particularly, because your concern with muskrat is different depending on where you live. For uh, not everybody, but for most people on the island, it was all about how much it's going to cost. For many, many people in Labrador, it was all about the environmental destruction brought forward by a new hydro development downstream from the Upper Churchill. So there's a lot to it, and some of it absolutely is complicated, and maybe there's more details coming in the offing so that, you know, whether it be Mr. Hanley at EcoNext and some of his uh, members of his association get the deets so that they can really ramp up to take advantage sooner than later for these opportunities, probably a very good thing. So we'll see where that goes, but again, like everything else in this world, the devils will be, the devil will be inside the details associated with that or anything else. And someone asked me to uh, say one more time about the issue concerning the cyber attack at North Atlantic. So they were intruded by an unauthorized third party. Some of their clients' information may indeed have been stolen during this particular intrusion. So they'll have your contact information, maybe some banking and financial information, which is what scares most people. So if you are one of their customers and you'd like to connect with the company, they put forward an email address where you can do exactly that, and it's an easy one. It's communications at northatlantic.ca. And the whole business of privacy and protecting our personal information whether it be with the unprovoked or unwanted phone calls to your home or some of the phishing emails that we see, unfortunately, pollute our email inbox day in and day out. The issue is not only for individuals, for companies, governments, utilities, all these types of groups. It's not if you're ever going to be hacked, it's when. So I don't know how and to what lengths listeners go to protect their private information and to keep some of the most important stuff like your financial and banking information out of your email for instance i don't know what layers of or measures of protection people put in place but when you hear the cybersecurity experts say quite clearly it's not a matter of if you'll ever get hacked it's just when you're going to get hacked 
And I would think that there's lots of these stories that go unreported. But now we heard, uh, this is a few years ago, where Marriott Hotels, they had a major hack. And their customers, for years, their information was gone. And, of course, that includes their credit card information, for instance, because you got to put one on the barrel head to secure a reservation and a room. And then the story last, night, last year in the United States with the Colonial Pipeline. Just imagine, that's where the real risk, right? You know, we talk about increased defense spending, all those issues surrounding NATO and, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. One of the real areas where the modern-day wars will be fought is online. So I even asked, I believe I asked, uh, Jean Charest, one of the candidates to be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, if we should be including spending on cyber defense as defense spending, not just with weaponry and the, and the like, because that's where some of the real risks are. You know, just imagine if the evil bad actors get into water filtration systems, the electrical grids, pipelines, all those things where they can create uh, chaos and havoc and do some significant damage, that's where governments really need to put a distinct focus on defending the best interests of the country, is to keep all of those people out of those types of systems, obviously. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us uh, there. Our email address is openline.vocm.com. Today's a good day to get on the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, one 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome. Welcome back to the program. Someone says, you know, and, and this is an interesting concept. Uh, from Aaron, he says, doesn't wind open up opportunity for arbitrage? Release less water if wind is blowing at night and when market prices are low, but let it rip in the middle of the day when prices are high. BC made a fortune on that from, uh, in California with uh, Enron. So arbitrage is arbitrage. It's the simultaneous sale and purchase of the same asset in different markets. So I know that's a, a big mouthful, but the Aaron's not wrong. Except when we're talking about relationship between British Columbia and California, we have a much different uh, issue surrounding proximity to market and the ability to transmit the power, which is a little bit more complicated when we talk about the remote nature of the island, in particular, to what would be the next available market for said approach to that financial issue surrounding arbitrage. Uh, let's go. Line number one. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Pelly, I got an issue with the eight nine five six nine three one number what? for ferry update. Okay. See, every time you phone in, they say they tell you if the if the ferry is tied up, kind of high winds, whatever, right? Yeah. But you don't get no information about that anymore. So when I phone uh, like eight, well, the eight nine five number, the date's the dollar five one one. So I had no satisfaction if, if the, the ferry is going to tie up or nothing like that. So I said, that, that's strange. What are you saying 511 for? And you don't say if the ferry is tied up or not. 511 is a transportation uh, uh, information line. So where do you normally get uh, ferry updates? Oh, that, that number gave you 8956931. And so what happens when you call that number now? Well, this is, well, this is press, press, the, press 1. Say when press 1... They tell you, say, Monday to Sundays. They tell you, like, uh, when the ferry leaves from Portugal, say, Monday to fr Sundays. 
in the same month and say when these belong on Mondays, mornings, whatever. But they don't get the update like uh, when the fears when we talk with bad weather or not. They use head down the long button now they don't. And I dial one eight three three number long distance, not long distance, but wherever it is. They don't, they don't give you no satisfaction but when when the fear is going to be tied up or not. There's a toll-free 1833 number. Yeah, Does that give the... Yeah, I did that, but still no... They said press different kinds of buttons I didn't understand, right? They said press the tone button in the side. I freaked around that. I said, I got no pace for that. So use that phone down. Just say, anybody got point St. John's? You don't know the boat's running or not, right? Well, there's a, a 729 number, right, for the government. But that uh, 1833 number, that's pretty easy to navigate, Jim, if you give it a chance. Yeah, I did, President. I explained you that you don't get much satisfaction on that, that information, right? I was just pressed this number, pressed that. I can't call it. I will no buttons to get. I don't know we cast money for these buttons. I'm not sure, right? No, it doesn't. That would be a toll-free number. So no. you're not going to endure any sort of cost if you go through the menu. Well, 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 I'll, well I'll, this is in the morning for the LCM update. That's the only satisfaction gets now, right? It feels him in the morning that that's the only way to get satisfaction from you guys? Yeah, I think the morning show tries to uh, keep people informed as to whether or not the ferries are running or how many of them are on the run. It's uh, day-to-day. But the 1833, if anyone's actually curious, it's uh, I think it's 1833 NL Ferry, which I can't remember what that is. 3779 yeah, is the last one. What? Yeah, I got the number I tried. Like I said, like, uh, they put different numbers. I said, I will form it that person different numbers. It's hard to understand. Yeah, I just try to follow along with the menu as it as it offers up the different options. And there's no cost with pressing one, two, three, or four, whatever the appropriate one is to press for information about the Bell Island Ferry. So Verna or anybody else who might be able to help Jim out with where you get your information as to whether or not the ferry is running today and on what schedule, if they can share it with us, we'll share it with you. Okay, thanks, Fanny. No problem at all, Jim. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. You know, and uh, predictably, every time there's a ferry conversation, the immediate reaction from many corners is simply relocate, which is, you know, for some really small, isolated communities, that conversation is ongoing, whether it be about sharing of services or what have you. And then some of the data that we get about the numbers of runs that have zero passengers, which really draws the ire of people living on those islands because they're right in pointing out that it's not just passengers that might be on the ferries. There might be some goods, you know, trucks with fish or whatever that would be on and actually you know that kind of transport is going to have to be offered so this is coming from uh, a member's office the department is no longer using the tape update system but we'll see if we can get someone a number to get information about when and if the ferries travel or if they're tied up but the whole concept of some of the islands to be relocated you know not every island is created equal different economies of scale different opportunities different numbers of young families you know, different uh, access to health care. And, you know, people are really deathly worried, and uh, uh, some people are furious when they hear any of the R word being thrown about. But one of the R words that I think shouldn't be a dirty word, and there should be more discussion surrounding it, is what this whole report means for one region or another with the 25 established regional networks that were part of that report, regionalization. Again, The immediate reaction coming from people who are residents of uh, local service districts is that because their leaders were not involved in any of the working groups uh, at municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, notably because they weren't members, they weren't involved. And so with the lack of detail, the immediate reaction was, why would I be interested in that? Because I'm not going to be willing and wanting to pay more 
for no additional services. I'm not going to get any water and sewer all of a sudden because I'm paying property tax to be part of this county system or this one region. That's fair, but I don't know why we've gone down that road. The report also includes, you know, references to paying more and not getting more. So, and again, what might look like it works up in Rodington, Bidearm, Hawks Bay and area might not be the same approach taken on the southwest coast. So that's where some of the devils, uh, some of the details really need to be better understood so that we can actually have the conversation without it going by the wayside. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Nancy. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing okay, Nancy. How about you? Oh, all right. Um, I wanted to just uh, have a, a little chat about our Green Cover Come Home year, but in the perspective of how uh, this whole regionalization talk and so on is affecting the community psyche. It's, uh, it's been a bit of a long haul to get people really interested in uh, and excited about stuff when this is like this pall hanging over everything, you know? Give us an example. Like, what are people thinking and saying? I mean, as you know from conversations we've had in the past, uh, there's the issue of if if the government goes ahead with, as the report suggests, because we still don't know what that's going to look like, but if it goes ahead as the report suggests, um, the regional government will inherit, quote unquote, the assets of the community. Um, And when you're in a small town in LSD, or whatever the case may be, everything that you have has been done through generations of blood, sweat, and tears of volunteer work, fundraising, you know, all of that stuff. So we have our fire hall uh, that we've, yeah, that was with, I believe, a federal grant. Um, We have... uh, let's say, reinvented it so that it now includes a small community space um, for meetings and so on and an office and so on. And everybody is a little, you know, ambivalent about it, whereas stuff like that used to be like, woohoo, yay. And they're ambivalent because it's this overarching feeling of, well, we're going to lose it anyway, so what difference does it make? You know? And and the same with the come home year. It's 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 really hard to get people involved because it's kind of like, you know, I've heard so many people go, well, this is the last come home year we'll ever have because it's the last time we'll be really a community. You know? Yeah. Do you think it's possible? Mental state. (laughs) Sure. But do you think it's possible that some of those emotions are possibly an exaggeration of what actually is going to happen? Because there's nothing to say that your community is all of a sudden dead if there's a regional cooperation. Well, uh, the the point that we've been trying to make from the start is um, that report came out and it should never have been published till they had some of the details worked out. Uh, for example, the taking of the assets and that sort of thing. Um, not the LSDs not having a seat at the table, but having like, you know, however large the area is, if there's 15 seats and there's 10 um, uh, municipalities, the municipalities each have a seat, but the, you know, remaining uh, LSDs have to have, 
you know, one one representative between however many. You know what I mean? So you no longer are autonomous. You no longer can say, well, we're going to have a Canada Day thing or a, because there's somebody else governing things. It's not the same. It is not the same feeling of the community pulling together. Um, and it may be exaggerated. But the issue, of course, is the fact that we don't know because nobody's told us because they don't know. Um, I think some of it should have been worked out uh, as, you know, possible scenarios that could be voted on or some such thing. Because right now it it is a little, um, you know, people are talking about the worst case scenarios because what else are you going to talk about when you don't know anything, you know? And, and that's where, you know, this happens far too often. Important pieces of public policy Bringing everyone who needs to be in the fold after the fact always leads to this stuff. Our minds immediately, human nature goes to worst-case scenario stuff. And I know it to be true because I deal with it all the time. You know, at MNL, I understood what they said when, you know, the working groups didn't include LSDs because they weren't members of MNL. Okay. But knowing full well that this focus was absolutely going to have a keen focus on LSDs, it would have been nice if there was some sort of opportunity for an umbrella association, even informally, to be struck, representing LSDs, so they could be in the room. And then to bring it back to their communities with a better understanding of what we're talking about versus thinking that, okay, if I live in this community and I become part of this one of the 25 regions, I won't be able to have a Canada Day. You know, to alleviate some of those worries with some actual, you know, uh, reflecting what the conversation included, that would be so helpful. Because now the report gets released and... Most are saying, nope, not interested. What are we not interested in? I'm not sure, but I'm not interested. Right. And you, and the thing that they're not interested in is that great unknown that nobody knows the answers to. I mean, we've tried to get answers. We've been on your show to get answers. Yep. We've written letters to get answers, you know, and there's no communication back um, other than the scripted, you know, when, that, when, you, when you break it down, the script reads, well, we don't really know. <laughs> You know, um, even if you had an idea of where your region would be, would at least be a step. And they keep saying, well, we'll leave that up to the areas to define. But that's kind of a non-answer because um, I think I mentioned on your show before, uh, when when, uh, it was broached in 2017 in the public meetings, the the uh, map drawn for our proposed region went from Cavendish up along our shore to Whitburn out the highway as far as Swift Current, and that was supposed to be our region. And it's like that has nothing. No, most of those places have nothing to do with us. Like it's it's um, it's stupid, actually. <laughs> um, so if we knew, for example, that the Bacaloo Trail would be a region. It's actually where we do our living and our business and our banking and our all of that. At least you know you have something in common with the people you're in the region with, you know? You, you've been generations of working together already. Uh, our fire departments up and down the shore from um, South Dildo right down to Winterton already have... Uh, not an association, but a, a you know an informal agreement for training and that sort of stuff. So they're already doing that, and they have been for years. And so now that won't be because 
moving in different regions. You know, it's it's all of those types of things that create that chit chat in the background. Um, that you know, like you said, is the boogeyman. And then you have the general population saying things like, and I totally get it. Um, well, <laughs> you know, if they want it, they can have it and they can run it. So, like, if they think that they're inheriting this vast volunteer base that's going to continue on doing the work, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of people digging in heels and saying, they want it, but they got it. Let them, let them figure out how to run it. We're not doing it. Which is why it's going to be different when we're talking about different regions. It, it just is. What works for you might not work for another part of the province. And I get all that because if we were talking about one blanket, here it is, this is the boilerplate, figure it out, then at least we'd have some details to ask questions about and have debates about. But right. we don't. And so I know why the conversation has been difficult to have, if not impossible for many, but I I think we're going to have to have more details. And this word, you know, becomes incumbent upon the minister herself to really start filling in the blanks because the questions that I have, that you have, that others have, we're not really getting much in the way of actual answers. Some references to figure it out and some of the non-answers that you refer to, and I think that's absolutely fair, and it's the way I would characterize it as well. So Minister Howell has her hands full to try to see how this gets implemented, or or even if it does. Nancy, last word to you before I take a break for the news. Well, uh, on the the bad side, we we feel that... uh, uh, it was inappropriate to have an association, a membership association, uh, spearhead this when they had a vested interest. That's our bottom line on that. And on the good news, we do have a come-home year from July 31st to August 7th. It's going to be a full week of activities here in Greens Harbor, and we encourage people to come out. we got all kinds of things planned. The calendar of events will be coming up on our um, Facebook group. Uh, in the next uh, few days. Good luck with it, Nancy, and thanks for the time. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we still have plenty of show left to speak with you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two, caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. How are you today, Patty? Doing okay, thank you. How are you? I tell you now, uh, a little bit sort of uh, dismayed about... Um, there a couple of weeks ago, I thought I heard on uh, one of the uh, airwaves that uh, yes, uh, uh, immigrants are coming in or um, uh, from uh, Ukraine, um, and employees are waiting for these people to come in. Now I'm not just dis- I don't uh, look. I'm look. Everyone can come in and have a good time and enjoy and go to work and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I thought I heard on the open lines or the airwaves uh, that there's people, uh, employees waiting for Ukrainian people to come in and go to work. 
I don't know if that's true. I thought I heard it, and I'm not sure, you know. But uh, I'm out there now beating the streets trying to find a job. I don't care what it is. It could be dishwasher cleaning tables at some place or even doing gardening and lawns or whatever. I can't hook it into a job. I'm semi-retired looking for a bit of work, and I can't get it. But I hear on the... Uh, say, uh, say, 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 NTV or VOCM or whatever, that uh, employees are waiting for Ukraine. Now, I'm not prejudiced. Look, we all need a little bit of help, and and you know they're over there and they're in war-torn country. God, you know, help them. That's the kind of thing. But um, I don't understand why um, we don't talk, uh, think about Newfoundlanders first. That's that's my dilemma. Well, I, I, again, I think we put everyone in the same envelope, for instance. Yep. I hear a lot of people just automatically think that immigrants come here with nothing, no skills, nothing to offer. When I'm not so sure why we think that and say that. I mean, just go to a hospital and see how many of the doctors may be foreigners and immigrants to the country. Right. Uh, I know a guy who's uh, an immigrant. He's not a brown or a black person. He's a white guy from Ireland that's here working as an engineer. So sometimes we have to you know, talk about very specific things like what kind of skills does someone bring to the country? What kind of skills do you bring to the job market? What kind of job are you looking for? Versus thinking that immigrants, refugees are taking all the jobs and we're left on the outside looking in. So you know, again, I just think there are different things. Refugees may come with very little and have to assimilate and learn the language and take entry-level jobs, whereas other immigrants are coming with a distinct skill set that the country is actually actively looking for, whether it be Ukrainians or anyone else in this world. So I guess that's where the conversation kind of gets muddled, yeah. is that you know not every immigrant brings the same set of credentials or experience or training or education. Some right. bring very high levels, and yeah. some bring... Not so much, where they need an additional layer of help. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like you know, I uh, I, I don't want to disclose, but uh, I'm out there um, going from hospital to places to say like Kent and stuff like that. I don't want the big sit-down job. I'm just looking for even if it's just stocking shelves or doing the simple things uh, in a semi-retirement situation, but just to be out there in the workforce and. Uh, uh, contributing to uh, society, that kind of thing, and being as a, you know, just trying to be a, a good citizen, uh, doing the best that they can in, in this pandemic uh, situation this past two years. But it uh, seems like there's no go, and uh, like you get sort of uh, downtrodden or, or you get a little bit um, discouraged uh, when you can't even just uh, say, go to a place and just clean off tables or just stock shelves and uh, for some reason is just don't uh, go there you know um, it don't make sense to me uh, as I say I'm not looking for a big, big job I just want to get out and and earn a small living part of a you know uh, situations and stuff like that but mm-mm. well if you're understand. a if you're a prospective employer and you've got some of these jobs as this caller describes uh, willing to do everything from clearing tables to stocking shelves or some uh, landscaping or gardening whatever it is if you're out there and you're actively looking for someone to take on one of those roles on a part or full-time basis if they contact me i'll put them on to you yes that'd be wonderful yeah i I can. They can take my uh, number off the air, and uh, yeah, we have it. Yep. 
We have it. I wish you good luck. Hopefully you can get the kind of job that you're looking for as soon as possible. There you go. It's not, it's not hard. It's just uh, just want to uh, be employed uh, uh, on a simple basis. That's it. Like you would. Yeah. All righty. Thanks. Yep. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Yep. Okay. Uh, uh, and again, sometimes I think we, and not this gentleman, we're really quick to think that so many, if not all, immigrants are coming with nothing to offer. Well, it's obviously not true. You know, there's different kinds of roles, and the country actually has a very specific program to attract skilled immigrants. It's absolutely the reality of life. There's four different silos to immigration in this country. And so I think that's where we kind of lose sight of what's going on is when we generalize all of these issues, whether it be who the immigrants are, why they're coming, what they get, and maybe uh, some supports that maybe locals don't get. Those types of the things, those thoughts, they seep into the immigration conversation very quickly and very easily. So I'm always up to uh, an honest, open, frank conversation about immigration, what people might consider to be downsides, and what are the absolutely uh, well-understood upsides to immigration. Let's go ahead and uh, take a break. When we come back, there's time for you to fill up the last of the show with the thoughts on whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, I was curious if you have any information about... uh, and, uh, motor registration. Is there any walk-in service whatsoever now? There was an established time specifically for seniors for a walk-in opportunity. I thought it was a Wednesday. It was Wednesdays from Wednesdays from opening till noon was the walk-in opportunity for seniors in particular. I don't even know if that's actually still in place, to be honest with you. Yeah, me neither, boy. Like, I don't know how relevant it is, but I don't need to go to the window wicket. So I got to go down that room down the, down the back there. There's license reinstatement, which is like, you know, uh, it's not the same as going up to the window, you know, and getting your vehicle renewed or something. You know, it is a little specific, right? Absolutely. So have you tried to book an appointment or to call them directly? No, I, I just got home, but uh, I'll get online and see what's going on. Well, uh, there's the the opportunity to book an appointment is a really easy one. You need a MyGov. Yeah, uh, you need an yeah, account. I've done it before, but uh, when it first came out, you get an appointment within two or three days. Jesus, now it's three or four weeks. I can give you uh, an email address that you can get a direct answer to that question very quickly. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, the, even though provincial government offices are closer there, aren't they, because of St. George's Day? Yeah. Uh, well, I've got their website there. I, I've booked online before, so it shouldn't be a big problem. I, I will give you the email address, too, because people have had great satisfaction with this one. Yeah. It's registrar. Uh-huh. MRD. Yeah. At gov.nl.ca. Yeah, I've used that one before quite successfully. Okay, thanks a lot. Anytime. All the best. Yeah. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, I don't know. Is there walk-ins now like it used to be? I don't think they've changed because, remember, quite clearly, the minister responsible, Sarah Studley, when they implemented the online booking system, and like many other things in this world, change is tough, and people 
by and large are resistant to change. Even though I was never a big fan of having to just take a number or sit there, wait your turn, which could take quite some time. But I think things have changed when they try to improve the efficiency of the system so that when you make an appointment, the appointment isn't a month from now, like what we saw with some of the hiccups when they first changed the system up. And they did try to accommodate seniors in particular, and it was Wednesday mornings from open till noon. But has it moved into a full walk-in like it once was? I don't think so. Now, what he needs for his license reinstatement, that just sounds like something that would absolutely require an appointment as opposed to because that would be a, a file that would be open and available and understood by the person that you're dealing with versus just re-registering your vehicle or getting your license or registering your trailer or whatever the case may be. So that sounds like it would be a different kettle of fish than some of the regular counter services. So hopefully you get some satisfaction with that. And, you know, even with the online offerings, I know not everybody's comfortable with it and not everyone's uh, technologically savvy, and I'm the furthest thing from. But even if you talk about some of the transitions that we're seeing in healthcare offerings and what virtual care is going to mean for different parts of the province, and it's absolutely real. On that note, the Health Accord work, and of course there are 57 recommendations and the report that's been first delivered to government, and it's there for all to see. The next wave of, uh, pardon me, the next report coming from Health Accord is going to be the most important one because it's talking about the blueprint for implementation. One thing to talk about a recommendation, but understanding exactly how it's going to work, when and how it's going to be implemented, will be the next step in people understanding whether or not they think it's going to work for them and whether or not government would be on the right track with it. So that report, we're told, by Health Accord is coming in May. There was no specific date for when in May we would see that report, but it's coming, and that's going to be the fill-in-the-gaps or fill-in-the-blanks from the initial 57 recommendations, of which many make a lot of sense to me. But, of course, when we see and hear the stories about a lack of access to health care and lack of access to a family doctor and clinics closing and services being eroded, then what you have is any additional conversation regarding change becomes even that much more tricky to navigate or to craft on behalf of whether it be Dr. Parfer, your sister Elizabeth Davis, and or Minister Haggie, or the Premier, or anybody else. So hopefully some of those details can help the conversation get further down the road. Okay, we're going to play ourselves out with a little bit of Chilliwack. Uh, and as we mentioned, it's the anniversary of the death of Brian Too Loud McLeod and his association with this city and a couple of notable bands, Headpins, Chilliwack, come to, come to mind. All right, good show. Really appreciate the support the program gets, all of the callers, listeners, emailers, and tweeters. You're all right. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.